Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. All right. Anna Vocino is back. For those of you that are new to the show, she is a cookbook author, a podcaster, a voiceover actor. You may have heard her on Must See TV on ABC or heard her voice on NBC recently. It's always fun and exciting for me when I'm like, oh, there's my friend Anna. So Anna has been on the show. She was a guest co-host back in the day, and she is coming back to celebrate because today is 15 years of how she really does it. So we're going to talk about where we were in 2006 and where we are now. I'll circle back with you afterwards. Anna Vocino, hello and welcome back. It's been a while. Yes, I think five or six years. Holy smokes. You went and got another five years <laughs> under your belt. Now you're up to 15 years. 15 years. Congratulations. Holy. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for letting me be here to celebrate with you. Well, thank you. You're a good person to come and celebrate with. I like a party. <laughs> well, maybe you won't like it so much because I want to talk about where we were 15 <laughs> years ago in 2006 and where we are now. So you warned me about that. And I have to be honest with you, I haven't thought of anything. (laughs) So I'm going to have 2006, I had a Mm seven-year-old. We bought our first house in LA back when, oh, this this is a throwback for the kids. The millennials were still coming of age, so they weren't buying real estate yet, but I'm, I'm solidly Gen X. So the only way as starving artists, we could buy a house because this was the height of the housing market bubble. Mm-hmm. So President's Day, 2006, we closed on our house and bought it with a stated no-doc loan. They're, they don't exist anymore. And what it is, is you state what your income is. You do have to send your tax returns. And even though it's no-doc, we did send some stuff in to, to qualify. But technically, you didn't have to. A stated no-doc loan. And they just gave out the money. A hundred percent. Hence what happened in what, 2009? And and then we moved in. And then at the end of 2006, our home value had gone down 60% (sighs) in the California crash. So I remember basically shitting a brick, but saying, well, as long as we can make the payment, we're going to stay here. And we made the payment and we stayed in that house for 14 years. And last year we sold it and moved up north. Did you regain your 60% back? We did. There you go. So just (laughs) if the market correction that's everyone saying is coming, just keep making the payments, guys. Hang in there. Hang Hang in in there there and wait 14 years (laughs) and you too will recoup your loss. (laughs) But the way I look at it is we wouldn't have gotten a house otherwise. And sometimes, you know, the universe works in mysterious ways. So Mm -hmm. sometimes you get a leg up in in a way you weren't expecting. I remember the market in 2006. It's much like the market is right now. It was crazy. It was nuts. So you got in. And then to stay in that space when you, because so often we saw a lot of people when their house went down in value 60%, they wanted to bolt, right? I never understood that because I was like, where are you going to (laughs) go? Like try to stay where you are, especially if you have kids. 
Mm-hmm. You know what a pain it is to move kids? Mm-hmm. Last year, my I flew my daughter home from, now she lives in New York. She's a college student. She's finishing up. I flew her home. This was my like Marie Kondo moment, which I don't have very many of those. <laughs> and I took, because this is the house she moved into first grade. Now she's 22. And I took all of her possessions out of the room that were left. Because every time they come home from college, they take a few things, they mm-hmm. sort through, but it's not done. It's mm-hmm. not close. It's still the shrine. You know, it's left <laughs> the way. And and not that I wanted to kick her out, but we were moving. So we had to figure it all out. And I didn't want to go through her stuff and make decisions about her things. I moved every single item from every drawer, every closet nook out into the living room. It looked like a trash heap dump of someone who grew up in the early 2000s. And I said, go through all of it. And she did. It took a while, but she did. Mm-hmm. She went through all of it. And that, because if, if I had left it ensconced in the energy web of her room, it mm-hmm. would have been too much to go through, but just like getting it out. Mm-hmm. And I felt very Marie Kondo in that moment. That so. was very Marie Kondo. And did she only acknowledging? Did she only keep what brought her joy? Yes. And one of them was like a dumb Happy Meal toy that she loved as a kid. And I was like, I don't even, that didn't even see again why they have to go through it because you don't know what they, what meant something to them. She like lost her mind. Like, I love this. It was like a, a flashlight that was like a Tony the Tiger. I don't, it made no sense. We didn't even eat Frosted Flakes. I don't know where she got it. So in 2006, you weren't podcasting yet. No, it started in 2007. Yeah. So that's where you were. You were, you had a seven-year-old, you just bought a home, not podcasting yet, and and you were a starving artist. And what were you doing professionally then? I was still acting on camera. Mm -hmm. I was still, I was doing voiceover. In 2005, I bought my first at-home mic, which was a $50 Marshall MXL 990. It was a (laughs) hunk of junk, but I booked a bunch of work. I'm still working with clients today Mm. that I booked work on that. We were about to... In 2006, my friend Lance Crawl came over to my house and said, I have an idea for a TV show. Can we record in your studio some banter? Because the idea of it was to be a radio show where he was a moron and I was like the weather and news girl. Mm-hmm. And we recorded some timely banter. In 2006, I believe it was Mark Foley. Remember that congressman who got busted in the men's room trying to get a beach? Oh, all coming back. Way back machine. <laughs> well, we and we bantered about that, and he turned it into a TV show pitch. And in February of 2007, we shot the pilot. But yeah, he was pitching at that time, okay. and it turned into two seasons of a TV show. So, the way back machine. The way back machine. All right. So, what now? What? What about you? Your so turn. T- 2006. I started the show. It's like October 7th, 2006. It was a Friday, and I remember going to the studio having tears. Because here was something I was doing that I wanted to do that was really, for me, it didn't make sense. I didn't have a radio background, right? Mm -hmm. And I had a six-year-old and a four-year-old. And I was on a sabbatical at that time because I was at the college. So I didn't have, you know, any of what I currently have. You know, I was married and that sort of thing. But that's where I was in 2006 thinking, gosh, it was a 30-minute show and it was live radio. Right. And I thought, who are the guests that can fill up air for 30 minutes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was my big concern. <laughs> but so did you have commercial breaks? So you're actually only talking for like three and a half minutes at a time, or you had to fill the whole half we hour? We filled the, the 30 minutes. So there was, wow. you know, music in the beginning and at the end. So it was probably 28 minutes. But that's almost, that's podcasting. 
right yes. before podcasting started. Yes. Because so. radio used to drive me nuts because we would have to stop for a word from our sponsor. <laughs> so that's so we, cool. You got to have long form conversation, but I could see why that would make you cry because yeah. that's, that's a lot to jump into. It was scary at first, but then by January, so that was October, by January, I went into the hour and I really liked it. Yeah. So I got to do that long form and it was great because when I'd bring on guests, they were used to the short form. And so right around minute 27, that's when the magic happened because all of their normal sound bites, they had to go beyond. And that's where I found it beautiful. So I really enjoyed that. But yeah, that's where I was in 2006. I didn't think, I didn't think I'd be here in 2015 with now a 21 year old in a 19 year old. Mm -hmm. Isn't it crazy when you're like, Oh, I have an adult child. (laughs) I am barely an adult myself. (laughs) How did I keep it together for that many years? To put another one into the world. How did you? I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's what your show's about. <laughs> Listen, as women regale you with tales about how they held their shit together by a thread for 15 years. You just don't quit. It's like your house, right? Your house is like the metaphor. What are you going to do? <laughs> You wake up and you you pay that mortgage. You wake up, you feed the kid. You wake up, you go to work. And <laughs> even if it's down 60%, even if the, the parenting is the hardest thing that you do. I, for me, parenting is the hardest thing that I have done and continue to do. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm getting some fruits from all that labor right now. But yeah, it's I love my daughters, but it's, it is hard. It is hard. Mm-hmm. They don't really tell you about the teenager stuff too. <laughs> Like, I feel like with parents who had kids who were older than mine, there was a little, like, there were a few snickers. Like, oh, you just wait. Like, but that was it. But like, what, tell me, what do you mean? It's kind of like they don't tell you when you're eight months pregnant what what labor and delivery is going to be like because they don't want to scare you. But like, you should tell us. Yes. Yes. And then they don't. Or the four days post birth giving. What what it's going to be like. They're like, no. It's it's so horrible and revolting. <laughs> we're just not, we're going to let you just ride it out. Okay. How afraid you are to go to the bathroom after you give birth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Weeping <laughs> that my entire bottom half of my body is going to fall out of myself. But we made it and here we are yeah, in know, 2021. So where are you in 2021? You know, I guess over the past 15 years, I wound up, that TV show I was referring to, I had a ball doing it. We did a couple seasons and it ran on VH1 and then Comedy Central. I don't know if it'll ever go to Netflix. I don't, I would like for it to. It'd be nice for it to have a second life again. Free radio is what it's called. It's so hard in the entertainment industry to get something that sticks, right? And so we had a mm-hmm. show that lasted two seasons, which right now it's like, if you have a show that lasts two seasons, it's like a smash hit. <laughs> You know, there are so many shows on the air right now that I've never even heard of. Mm -hmm. There's so many shows on the air that are not even getting reviewed properly. Like, I'm like, what is this show? A friend of mine is writing on a show that I'm like, that show looks awesome. How come there's nothing about it? Like, not everything, you know, it's so segmented and so niche. But so back then, to be able to have it on VH1 and then on Comedy Central was a huge honor. Mm -hmm. And then the show got canceled and I took it very personally. And I thought, not personally in the sense that like I was responsible somehow for the show getting canceled. The, it, personal in the sense that I was hoping that the show would garner me enough momentum, mm-hmm. enough of a running start that I could get some career action 
without having to actually believe in myself, if that makes sense. If the show did well, I could say, hey, I'm on the show and use that instead of being like, hey, I'm great. You should hire me. Mm -hmm. Because I always had a very hard time with that and Mm -hmm. still do. And so what wound up happening is I went down a pretty bad three-year depression and dove into voiceover, dove into podcasting, said yes to Vinnie Tortorich in 2012, <laughs> produced his podcast for free for years until he learned how to produce and wound up having a wonderful on-mic relationship, but also off-the-mic relationship and transferred all of my food blogging stuff into low-carb and have two cookbooks. And now I have launched a food brand and I'm selling sauces and we're about to launch spices and yada, yada, yada. So it, it really, I said yes out of a place of when he asked me to produce his show and be on it with him, I was like, <sighs> all right. <laughs> so like, you know how people are like, unless it's a hell yes, I consider it a hell no. I'm really not one of those people. I've ne- It's rare that something feels like, yes, I have to do this. But if I hadn't said yes to him, I don't know. I love that I said yes to him, but I hated it at the time. I didn't want to do it. Why did you hate it at the time? Because it's not what I wanted to do. I just wanted to do comedy. Mm. I was like, well, I guess I'll do it. It's probably good for me. Because I was saying yes from a place of being depressed. Mm. So nothing felt good. When you're depressed, no choice feels good. Then I look back at it now from a place of not being depressed and going, Thank God you did that. What a fun adventure this has been. Mm-hmm. It's opened up my world to something completely different. When you first started podcasting, didn't you used to have to drive to his house? I first started with a podcast called Yoda and Me for David Hornsby and my husband wrote it together and they were working on a show together and they came up with this character of basically Yoda as, as like a regular character actor who lived in the Valley. And so they it was a comedic podcast and I think each episode was like, five to 10 minutes long and it was scripted. David Hornsby is in, he's in Mythic Quest and he's Rickety Crickets from Always Sunny. He's one of the executive producers of Always Sunny. He's great. And so they, they were doing this thing and it wound up getting millions and millions of downloads and became like a cult hit. But it was so early on in podcasting. I, I was producing it. They were also producing it and it was so labor intensive and I had to update XML code to like to have it sync to iTunes. I had to get a tech guy teach me how to do that. There weren't like these cute little WordPress plugins or Blueberry or uh-huh. Libsyn didn't exist. So then by the time 2012 came along and Vinny said, hey, will you be on my show and produce it? I was like, no, it's a ton of work. And so I said, because I'd had that experience, I said to him, I will do it. I read his book and it was so good. Fitness Confidential. It was so good. I was like, I have to, I don't know why. I just have to do this. And I begrudgingly said yes, as we've established. And I said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to turn on the mic. We're going to talk and have a long form conversation. And I'm going to turn off the mic and I'm going to send you the file and you're going to have to deal with it. Slap on the intro, slap on the outro, get your people to do it. But that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to remove anything. If you say anything bad, (laughs) I'm not going to edit. (laughs) I'm not going to do, you know, drop ins. Like it's not a radio show. I'm not going to go pew, pew, pew. Like I'm not putting sound effects. We're not doing any of that. It's not the Howard Stern show. It's not, it's, it's a conversation and we can have guests. I can, I'll facilitate that. And because of that, that's kind of what set up the tone. And also I didn't realize like what you were saying, it was kind of like the beginning of the long form Mm -hmm. conversation on podcasting where you really get to know podcasters as humans Mm -hmm. instead of putting on a radio persona. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that I set those boundaries in place, but also I had to because we were doing three shows a week and it would have been too much. So he came over every Sunday and we would record for, you know, six to seven hours total. Oh, geez. I mean, not I, the, you know, and I would cook, but the thing, the, the other thing is I would cook. And then he told me about NSNG, no sugars, no grains, which is the thing that he has trademarked and talks about. Mm-hmm. And I started cooking for him and I started changing all my recipes to be NSNG. And then he said, you should do a cookbook. And I was like, that's crazy. What? And it took me four years to come out with the first one, but yeah. So it all kind of sprung out of that. Tell us more about why it took four years to come out with the first cookbook. Because we were all waiting for it. I remember. You're so sweet. I think because I never thought that I would be an author or an author of cookbooks. And I don't know if I've told you this story before, but a girlfriend of mine was at an audition and she was running late and she was texting me. We were supposed to meet up afterwards. And she said, there was a famous actor, actress there. And this person was saying to, in the room to a mutual friend, oh my God, I just came out with a cookbook and it was so exhausting and blah, blah, blah. Well, my girlfriend, we meet up for coffee or whatever. And she's like, and she tells me the story, this, this actress saying this thing. And we were like, cookbook. What is it? Like 300 words? Stupid. <laughs> it's a lot of, oh, it's a lot of work. And then I just feel like the universe was like, oh, you're going to be that much of a bitch. We're going to inspire you to write not one, but two cookbooks so you can see exactly how much work it is. (laughs) And the work is, yes, of course, writing recipes. I chose to learn food photography because I didn't want to pay a setting everything, you know, make it working with the editors, proofreading a million times, then still there being an error, you know, that kind of stuff. But more importantly, the work of getting over all of your fears Mm -hmm. And thinking that I would wake up in the night going, oh my God, I'm going to get all one-star reviews on Amazon. And then you're like, okay, so what? So what if that happens? Mm -hmm. So what if you're the crappiest received cookbook of the year? Okay. And then I was, honestly, I think that's how my brain operates. As long as I I, uh, expect the worst, then everything else is a delightful surprise. (laughs) (laughs) So when it became a bestseller, I was like, oh, that's nice. (laughs) <laughs> Didn't see that coming. Really legit did not see that coming. But I think that's the protective mechanism of coming from the entertainment industry and being like, head down, just keep working, just keep plowing away. So, yeah. Well, the other thing I remember, Anna, is that with your recipes, the m- amount of test runs you went through to yes. make sure that they were consistent you have high integrity for the work that you put out in the world. And so you weren't just going to, oh, I've done this once and put it out there. And so oh, that was yeah. It's a number of factors too. And this stuff that I kind of picked up along the way is the moment I was diagnosed with celiac, I started blogging gluten-free recipes and you do a, you know, adopt a gluten-free blogger or like a roundup or like a trait, you know, you make each other's recipes in the community and helps you build with your audiences. Right. And this is early on, this is 2006, 2002 to 2006 at, at blogspot. This is glutenfreeanna.blogspot.com, which now forwards you to my site, by the way. It still exists. Just totally different. I remember making other people's recipes and being like, well, that's weird. I am a whiz in the kitchen. And that recipe, I just couldn't get it to work. And then kind of talking to people and being like, oh, yeah, yeah. She's known for, she just makes it once and puts it up. Or or she'll make it. And if it doesn't work, she'll make, she'll write the changes. But she will. And I was like, 
what? <laughs> like to me, that seemed from a, a level of quality control that you would alienate your audience when they couldn't make it. But I didn't realize that the the culture of food blogging and cooking is very much like the food blogger slash cook expert is up here and everyone else is down here in our minds. We've put ourselves down in that place of like, mm. they know what they're talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. And I was like, but that's not true. We're all the same. We're all we're all trying to, you know, feed ourselves and our family. Some of us have dietary issues we're dealing with. Some of us are making three different, four different dinners every night trying to please everybody in the family. And and so I, I always felt like, well, I want it to be reliable and high quality. And that coupled with a few other experiences, one of them being I did have a chance early on to speak with a literary agent about possibly doing a traditional publishing deal. And she said to me a few things. She goes, well, nobody knows who you are. Nobody's going to buy your book. Number one. Number two, why don't you partner with a celebrity chef, which made no sense to me. I was like, well, why would they partner with me? They would just do their own. (laughs) And then number three, which was, which I I can kind of see now she meant like being like kind of like a ghost writer Mm -hmm. or like a co-writer. I don't know. It didn't seem to work because I know a few celebrity chefs and they do their own. That's, that's their whole thing. Mm -hmm. So it didn't, it didn't make sense. And then also too, why would they do, they wouldn't do low carb, which is what I was doing, you know? Mm -hmm. And then number three, she said, because nobody knows who you are, they're not going to trust you that you're going to have good recipes. And that the one is the one that hit my heart because I think that like trust is very important to me. You know, Vinny and I set up this entire, we've spent now the better part of 10 years establishing trust and leaving a lot of money on the table and not taking on certain sponsors and not take, I mean, I get pelted daily, do this, do that. We do that, you know, and I pass on almost, I mean, 99% of it. And so for me establishing that trust, and now that's gone into the food brand, like the sauce that we manufacture has to be exactly what I preach about on the podcast or else I couldn't live with myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I always say like, I'm now pushing 50 and it's like, oh, now I'm finally seeing where my value system is. I, I can trace back all those choices. You know, you can kind of see where you land from it. And, and I'm okay with it. My friend Pam Slim, she has this book called The Body of Work. And as you're talking about, you know, podcasting, podcasting with Vinny and before with your husband and producing and then the blog post, right? And, and the cookbook, it's what happens is people can look at us here and go, oh, how did you two get here? But it's all those little things along the way that created this body work, something somebody said, some idea that came in and we thought about it. And it became either it was, I know for me with building my business, it was, there were some people in the industry and I saw what they did and I was like, oh, hell no. And I did the exact opposite. Right. Right. And because I had to go with what was my value that I could do. What is something you saw that you said no? Okay. So one of the things when I work with clients, I work in a long format. I like, I like long format. So I typically work in a, in a year, right? And so right. a lot of coaches that I know were doing like six weeks and I six tried that weeks format. to a new you. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, it, and I didn't like that because I, and I, and I tried it in the very beginning thinking, Hey, this will be great. Like six weeks because people want to know that it's going to be over. It's that quick fix, right? The new mm-hmm. you. Oh yeah. But I, I realized one day I go, I'm a really good swim coach and I can't teach anybody how to swim in six hours. Like it, so I'm, I'm going to change their life in six hours. Like, come on. Right. So that was one example. And then it's interesting because I've watched the industry now change because there are more year long, six months or year long coaching programs and packages out there. So that was one way. Yeah. And it's worked. 
it's a beautiful way to do it. It's a great partnership with my clients. And then the other thing is something you said about like the authority and trust and pedestal stuff that goes on. Like I really look at my clients as I'm a partner with them. It's not like I'm this big guru here and I know right. all and you don't, right? Because the goal for them is to develop their own agency and develop what's inside of them, not mm-hmm. for me to tell them what to do, right? I don't want them to be trained monkeys. Yes. I think I have a lot of audience members and who've turned into diehard fans because they were afraid of cooking and they wanted to do this low carb thing, but it sounded very intimidating and they didn't make anything. They would get takeout or pre-prepared foods at the thing. And so now they're going to, now I'm telling them, Hey, you, you can do this, mm-hmm. but that is literally your target. And it happens constantly where people are like, I was terrified of what to do with raw chicken. I was terrified <laughs> that I was going to ruin this steak. And I'm like, no, no, it's easy. You know, I want to, people to realize how easy it is because And eventually I could be out of a job and that's fine with me. I'll go do something else. But so far, there's no chance of that happening. You know, we all kind of grew up with that. Like doctors are gods and Mm -hmm. teachers are gods and everybody. And you're taught to learn and ask a few questions, but not too many questions, Mm -hmm. you know. And I feel like, and maybe that's my background as a comic. When you observe that, you're like, well, hold on, (laughs) you know. It seems a little crazy. I remember early on, our show was nominated for like best podcast, and we went to New Media Expo. Is I think that's what it was called in Probably. Vegas in like 2013, yeah. 2014, 2014. And because uh, we've been at it a couple of years, maybe a year and a half, and we met up with very well known podcaster and his soon to be wife, and they were delightful. I had dinner with them and a couple other folks, and they were killing it in the recipe game, making recipe PDFs and making 27 to 30 grand a month selling recipe PDFs. And I was like, man, how do you generate so much content? Because it takes me a while to write a recipe. Now, to be fair, I have this day job mm-hmm. called voiceover and I, you know, it's not like <laughs> I'm doing this full time, but for me, it's almost like when you write a chapter in a book and then you need to get some space from it and go back and you make it again. And then you, you know what I mean? You have to like, let it sit, you know, make it better. And, and I have since very much sped up my process. I now am more practiced at it. But at the time I was like, wow, you guys are you're doing a PDF every month and launches and apps and this, that, and the other thing. And then she said to me, well, you know, you can just get a recipe off the internet. And if you change the thing and then put your own wording in the instructions, you're not violating copyright rules. And I was like, (laughs) does that go against your integrity? That hurt my feelings to hear. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. So I guess I'm just going to come up with my own process. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I bet the people whose recipes are taken and slightly altered, by the way, I'm in a number of Facebook groups too, of food bloggers and uh, CPG brands. And it's, it is a thing and people get very upset by it. And it's usually like an Eastern Bloc country or a Chinese company that has lift, literally lifted somebody's food blog, the pictures, everything, created a Kindle mm-hmm. mini or something. And, and it's really hard for them to get it shut down. And so it's, you know, it's a very common practice to lift that stuff. It's an it's an interesting world. What's CPG? Uh, CPG means consumer packaged goods. Okay. So that is like anything you see at the grocery store that is has more than one ingredient that is processed or packaged. 
So basically not produce or meat. It's everything. It could be oat milk. It could be my sauce on the shelf. It could be a box of pasta. It could be uh, Oreos. So a couple of things I want to circle back to. One is when we first started, you're like, oh, 2006. I don't really remember, right? And we started with your daughter. Yeah, now you got me. And then we were able to. So this is just great insight for all of us is sometimes when the question first happens, we have to remember we're not Google. We're like, boing, right? <laughs> but as you start the process and you get going, things start to generate. And Anna got back to her blog spot website, right? Mm -hmm. That she brought up and remembered. So, but the other thing I want to go back to is this couple that you met. And so they're killing it. They're making a lot of money. And so sometimes we, we will measure a data point of seeing what somebody else is doing and thinking we should do that, right? Which there's a lot of judgment and that is actually really violent towards ourselves, right? And then what sometimes I have to remind myself is, Corinne, what's the race that you were in? Could I sustain that over time? Would I feel good about myself? Would it lead to more of my own, you know, my own shame storms? And if that's going to contribute, that's going to knock me down in the long term. It may work, you know, the short term. It's like, oh, great, fast cash, right? And that was even with the six-week coaching versus the year. At first, those were much harder packages to sell. But six weeks, I was going to lie to them if I said, oh, I'm going to transform your life in six weeks. I left a lot of money on the table because when I started looking at human behavior and what works for my clients the best, this year container was a much better one. So for you, not doing those recipes, pardon? You're ahead, I was just saying, say you're ahead of the curve on that because I feel like now more coaches are seeing like that we need to do this for a year to get those results. I feel like I see that more and more now. It's becoming more the common practice to do mm-hmm. it that way. But so leaving that money on the table then and not doing those recipes or changing other people's recipes, with what you know now and where you are now and where your business is now, would you change any of it? No. Mm -mm. So it's kind of like your house. It's worked out for you. Yeah. No, I I don't change. I wouldn't change any of it because the best recipes come from, uh, you know, from that creative process. And here's what I would have changed. I would have put fewer recipes in each book. I think I wanted to over deliver. Mm. And in that sense to having high quality standards and wanting to over deliver, I worked myself too hard. So I could have, instead of 154 recipes in the first book, what if I just did a hundred? Like what would happen? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. I just arbitrarily said 154. Mm-hmm. And then... The second book, I was like, well, I have to top the first book. (laughs) So it's like 160 (laughs) plus. And again, it's like, and I've now since written uh, 120 more recipes. And so I'm debating if I'm going to do a third book or if I'm going to just, you know, maybe do a sub stack and release them or if I'm just going to give them all out for free. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's now a compulsive recipe writing behavior within myself. And I will say this, I am still very much after, again, having done this for the better part of 10 years and watching hundreds of thousands of people and comments and cards and letters, Vinny and I call them, but they're tweets and emails, Mm -hmm. getting all the cards and letters from people, 100% of people who cut out sugars and grains eat it again. Mm -hmm. And the pattern is 
oh, I was quote unquote so good mm-hmm. for so long. And then a year and a half went by, I lost all the weight. And then one thing, you know, they go to one event and have a thing. Mm-hmm. And then literally Vinny and I don't hear from them for one, two, three years. And they I'm back. I gained it all back, but I'm back. Mm-hmm. And early on, I had the instinct when I wrote the first cookbook that I didn't want to use for me. It didn't work for me to use artificial sweeteners or sugar substitutes. Mm-hmm. I don't like the way they taste. And having an autoimmune disease of the gut, I don't like the way they treat my gut. Mm-hmm. They agree with other people. If you like the taste, if that's something you need to do, fine. But I felt like even just saying those words just now was revolutionary because it was either this is a diet book or this is a cookbook of indulgence. Mm-hmm. You know, you're either Richard Simmons or Nigella Lawson. You can't be both. And I did, it didn't sit well with me. And I remember having numerous conversations with Vinny because he's the no sugar, no grains guy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I'm coming out with a cookbook that you're going to basically be endorsing, I hope. Mm-hmm. I want to have a sweets chapter where I put in what works for me, which is if I'm going to make a dessert, I'm going to make it homemade and I'm going to make it with the least amount of sugar possible to make the recipe work. Because by the way, I tried to make pumpkin pies several times without any sugar. <laughs> it smells amazing. It tastes like air. It has no flavor. The sugar is actually what marries the pumpkin spice flavor together, right? It was revolutionary in my brain to go because I came from diet mentality. Mm-hmm. I was a dancer. I was, I've been on a diet since I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. And so just to be eating real food and then go, you know what? It's somebody's birthday. I'm going to make them this lemon cake that is, it is grain-free, but it has a little bit of honey in it. And it's a wonderful cake. And especially if you cut out sugars and grains, you'll really, it tastes really sweet, you know? So it feels like a treat. And so I realized, I was like, I'm going to put in a dessert chapter that has actual sugar in it in a no sugars, no grain book. Mm -hmm. And I have written a million disclaimers at the beginning, at the beginning of the sweets chapter on my website. I answer the question and I still, that's probably the thing. There's two things I get the biggest hate mail cards and letters about. It's that, how could there be, it's almost like, are you, do you buy a cookbook and you're immediately like, I'm going to make this thing, even though, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like people are compelled to make the lemon cake. I don't know what it is. And I know now, at least for myself, when I made a commitment to not have something, it is tempting to open the book and go, I'm going to eat that. Mm -hmm. The temper tantrum, you know, you know it well. Mm -hmm. I don't put the nutritional info in the sense of the carb counts, the calorie counts, the fat grams, the macros, I don't put that stuff on there. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of anger about that because I have always ever wanted to destroy diet mentality mm-hmm. and say, if you're for the most part eating real foods that you're cooking at home, you're good. Mm-hmm. You cut up for the most part sugars and grains and processed foods, you're good. I still... And waiting for the person to get, because, you know, people go low carb and they're like, well, I can't have a baby carrot. Mm-hmm. It's too much sugar and a baby carrot. And I'm like, no, you're, that was not how you got yourself into trouble. We all didn't get fat from baby carrots. Mm-hmm. And if we did, I want to talk to that person because we've never met a human after all these years. So that to me felt like it was a big struggle to do that. Now I'm solidly lined up with it. It took a while. And then I saw a cookbook author I love, Terry Turner, who wrote No Crumbs Left. And she has a, an amazing diehard audience, a Whole30 type of. Mm-hmm. But if you look at her cookbook, she's got a chocolate cake recipe with gluten and sugar and dairy. 
She's got, you know what I mean? And she did the same thing. And I was like, yeah, I was curious. I went to her Amazon reviews and it was the same thing. Like people just couldn't, it was black and white. You're either Mm -hmm. giving me a whole 30 book or you're giving me Nigella Lawson's desserts aplenty. But life doesn't work that way. I'm often coaching clients out of this zero sum game or this all or nothing mindset, right? Like yes. all or nothing. And when we go to that, like, am I a good girl? Or am I a bad girl? Right. And, and so much of the patriarchy is wrapped up into that, but in the diets, like, are you following it? Or are you not? Versus, I mean, Vinny's always been like, put a little life into living. It's just not life into living every day. Right. Right. And, right. you know, I think about, as you're talking about the sugar, I think about the little house on the prairie books. And would Pa would go into town and he'd come back with some sort of a sugar thing and, and what a delightful thing it was because sugar wasn't plentiful. I mean, our problem right now is sugar isn't everything. Yep. Right? That's the problem. It's not that eating wholesome foods is a problem. It's that we've now put it in everything, right? And we've talked about that. And again, when I talk about the agency is everybody has to figure out what works for them and what doesn't work for them, right? So your example of the stevia is great. Like you're like, I'm not into that, but I'll do honey. There may be certain sugars that I'll use that I really enjoy that's delightful and it doesn't have to be excess sugars. Right. Right. Well, because when you go back to, after you've cut out sugars and grains for a little while and you reset your taste buds, it is interesting when you go you have your favorite dessert at your favorite restaurant and you take a bite of it and it feels like you got punched in the, in the teeth and, and it's so cloying because they put so much sugar into it. So all of my recipes are that are dessert recipes that have some sugar in them definitely are made intentionally with a, the least amount of sugar that I think is possible to make it work. And I hear people all the time say, hey, I, I made your cheesecake tart and I took the sugar out altogether and it was great. Great. I love it. So, Anne, I have to tell you this. So I've had, I mean, I've had a fair number of cookbook authors on the show, you know, over the years over, and, but consistently the feedback I get, and also from my clients, they love your cookbooks. That's really nice of you to say that. Thank you. It's, well, it's not nice. It's the truth. That's nice <laughs> right, of you to so, tell the truth. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just feedback, but it's been consistently like they love your cookbooks. They go and tell their people about it because Again, it's real food and it tastes yummy. And again, when we think about like, we, you and I have probably talked about this, like the 90s, right? The no fat and the, the green snack oh, wells. God. Like the we were so wells. indoctrinated that if you want to be- snack wells. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. We were so indoctrinated. <laughs> that if you want to be skinny, right? It wasn't even healthy. It was just about being skinny. How did you look on the outside, totally. right? Forget what was happening in your brain or inside your body. <laughs> yep you had to sacrifice, you had to struggle. And that's the beauty of your cookbooks is you actually get satisfied with the food that you eat. It's revolutionary, honestly. (laughs) Because we're so used to just starvation. I always make a joke on the podcast that if I wrote a diet book called Hate Yourself Thin, Mm -hmm. it would be a number one bestseller. Mm -hmm. In fact, I might just do it. Because here's why, because the diet mentality wants us to be spending all of our time tracking and starving. And, and by the way, you can't think of anything else when you're hungry, you can't get your work done. You can't contribute to the world. You can't, you're not present for your kids, for your friends, for your family, for your job. You're just like starving. And, and, and by the way, then that's all that you're talking about with people. And you, it's dull. You become a dulled person in every way. Mm-hmm. And it's a form of deprivation and self-hatred, but it keeps you buying the pills, the potions, the powders, the plans, the supplements, the things that, you know, 
and nothing against industry. I love industry. I love innovation. But boy, oh boy, it's it's not going anywhere yet. <laughs> so it, it, it's, it just reinforces the idea that if I just diet hard enough, I'll be thin and then people will love me and I can love myself. And it's like, you can't hate yourself then. Mm-hmm. You just can't. Yeah, it's the big lie. It's the yeah. big lie we tell ourselves. So in addition to the cookbook, you mentioned you have a food line. That's right. I started with my marinara about a year ago. A couple years before that, a listener called and said that he had lost a bunch of weight cooking from the books and he's a food manufacturer and he knows how to, and he says, I hear you talking with Vinny that you want to do your sauces. I was like, what? That's a thing that I could do? (laughs) And so we spent the better part of a year and a half, two years developing it. And again, it could have been much shorter, but I was dragging my feet. Like he would send samples and they would just sit there for three weeks because I was afraid to like, well, if I taste these, then we have to move forward, you know? (laughs) And that would mean what? I don't know. (laughs) I will say this. If I had known then what I know now about launching a food brand, trying to get in grocery stores, selling direct to consumer and now we're, we have four flavors of sauce and now we're launching three flavors of spice and we're working on four flavors of dressing that'll launch next year. Oh, yes. If I had known that, hard pass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I have a nice, easy life where I can just do voiceover and podcast and, you know, maybe sell some cookbooks at Christmas time and write, write some recipes occasionally. Do I need to start a completely new company? No. Yes. You're Nobody needs it. that. <laughs> Do we need, does the world need another jar of tomato sauce? I just got an email while we were on saying, sorry, our pasta sauce section's all full up. We'll let you know when it empties out. The world doesn't need that. You know, so I, the fact that I'm doing it seems on paper very stupid. But I believe strongly in, I want to be part of the solution with this food supply problem that we're having. I want to be part of the solution to organic farming and healing the soil. And (laughs) it starts with that. I want to have the highest quality ingredients. I want to have, I want to be able to pick up a jar of organic tomato sauce and turn the back and not go, oh, they added cane syrup and agave. Why? Mm -hmm. Almost all of them that are organic have sugar added. Mm -hmm. So I want to be, it's expensive to make. It's expensive right now until we can Mm -hmm. scale up and find somebody who can do it for less money or I can, I'm hammering my guy. I love him to pieces because he's the one who started this, but I call him all the time. I'm like, Mike, you need to make it for less money. <laughs> I can't. He says, he's from Tennessee and he's a delight. And are people enjoying your sauces? They are. They are reordering by the case. They're really good. Mm-hmm. I also had that thing where, because I've always made sauce homemade for 25 years. I was like, why would somebody buy a jarred sauce? I've never bought a jarred sauce. My mom was raising me a single mom. She would buy the, the ragu when I was little. And then he, this guy, he really manages to make it exactly how I make it and according to my recipes. And by the way, all of my recipes are in my books. Like you, can, you don't have to buy the sauce. You can just make them mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. But it was important for me to think for things to match. And the spices are the, my taco seasoning, my ranch dressing called the dill, my barbecue dust from my first book. The ranches from the second book. But it was really important that they match exactly how they taste when you make them at home. 
And so it takes uh, spices. We've been in R and D for about a year and just, I know we have to wrap up, but I just want to give a quick, here's, here's one. I hired a food consultant company because there's so much like you don't even know what you don't know as far as labeling, mm-hmm. compliance, all this stuff. And I, you know, we're working with co-manufacturers called co-mans, right? We're working with different co-mans to make different things, but we still have to be compliant in how we're selling it, especially with labeling with organic. And so I hired this food consultant company and we were having an issue with the barbecue dust clumping because of the garlic powder. And I'm very much like, yeah, it's garlic, garlic sticky. It has oligosaccharides and it sticks. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care. People will get, if they write me saying this stuck together, okay, use a fork and smash it. Like you're fine. Like it's just what garlic powder does. The spice company said, we are not going to make this if it clumps like this, or we'll make it and we'll give you a three month shelf life stamp on it. And I'm like, nope, do not do that, please. And so it was a big back and forth for four months about this particular thing. And so I I hired this food company to help with a number of things and so. And the guy says, you can just put in rice bran hulls or blah, 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 cornstarch. I said, no, the whole point is we're the no no sugars, no grains people. (laughs) So I'm not going to add in Mm -hmm. grains, even if they're organic, which by the way, you'll see the taco seasoning packets at the store that are organic. They all have organic cornstarch or organic rice bran hulls Mm -hmm. to keep it from clumping or to thicken it or whatever the reason is, anti-caking, whatever the reason is. And I said, we're not going to do that. And he said, well, there's a certain amount that you can put in and not even disclose it on the label. And I literally like, <laughs> and my business partner had to jump in and be like, okay, um, like, cause he knew I was about to lose my mm-hmm. mind. And so I was like, wow, I'm, I'm paying somebody and they're telling me to go against exactly what I'm trying to stand for. And so imagine when there's a lot more money at stake, we haven't even sold this product yet. There's no money at stake. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. So imagine when there's a lot more money at stake. And so to me, again, the integrity, the, the filter of values is the integrity has got to be there first because I, the trust is too important to me. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, and again, it goes back to, I think earlier what you were saying, and this happens so much in business and in entrepreneurship is that sometimes there's, there's so much pressure of no, but you have to do it this way. But what are the values, right? Like no sugars, no grains is really important. If you're going to put that stamp on there, that's really important. And there's always going to be people that push up against those values or the boundaries that we have, right? Right? Of saying no, but you have to do it this way or there's money. And money is always a, a reason to override values. I and mean, we see Absolutely. this all the time, right? We see this all the oh time. Oh my God, that's so true. Yes. I, and in fact, there we have been calling a lot of, co-manufacturers to scale up the sauce, pretty much everybody's like, oh, you can't do the way you guys are doing it. We, no one's going to do that. Click. <laughs> okay. And, and I was like, well, I'm used to hearing no on so many levels, but I'm just going to keep doing it anyway. But, but I want, I want to, I want the audience because one of the things is that, you know, there are these rules of, again, whether it's how you have to lose weight, it has to be, you know, the white knuckle, totally doing it perfectly. Mm-hmm. The way to make money has to be a certain way. And you've been a successful entrepreneur where you've been able to make a lot of money over the course of your career in these different businesses. And I really, and I want that to be because otherwise people can think, oh, Corinne and Anna are just out there struggling. Like, no, we, we do really well. Oh yeah. No, I've been very lucky and been very blessed. Um, Hello. hello, Wait, time out. I call BS on the very lucky and very blessed. You you have to own it. Like you've worked, you've worked your ass off. You've been and creative. I continue to, yes. And you've done hard stuff in, say, in terms of you could have said yes to a lot more money, 
there's been a yes. lot of opportunities. So I would say, like, let's not call luck and blessed. Because then the, the listener on the other side goes, I'm not very lucky. It didn't happen for me. The harder I work, the luckier I get. I like that phrase. Okay. There have been so many disappointments along the way, and yet I've still managed to make a lot of money. So I'm so focused on the food business, which is not yet profitable, nor do I see it being profitable for at least two to three years. So that's probably why I'm saying mm-hmm. that. But yes, and, and I did something early on in my voiceover career, which is to write down that I want to be the voice of a network. Mm-hmm. And at the time when I wrote that, they would not let women near a, a network mm-hmm. <laughs> with a 10-foot pole. It was the same old dudes mm-hmm. on Fox you know, mm-hmm. doing that trailer promo voice. And so I remember writing that down. And in 2014, I was the first woman to get an entire night of shows to voice. And it was revolutionary, honestly. And then in 2019, NBC hired me to be the voice of late night reality and comedy, which was, again, even more revolutionary. And now they've since changed the structure. and They have a bunch of us doing a bunch of different shows, which is awesome. I love it. That taught me that I was like, oh, I guess things can change. Mm-hmm. I remember I'd get so excited because I would listen to, was it 2014 when you started doing ABC, the Thursday mm-hmm. night TVs? And I'd be like, that's right. The show there's Anna. And we get so excited. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> I had to learn how to say how to get away with, how to get away with murder really fast because they <laughs> always would like, you have to say, you know, a bunch of words in four seconds. Mm-hmm. But I still kind of felt like when I got on for the very first session with ABC, first of all, my agents freaked out and I was like, Thank you for freaking out. I appreciate that. But when I read the audition, I was like, oh, no, there's nobody else who can do this one but me. This is my job. Like, you, sometimes you just know that. Oftentimes you don't. But every now and then you get that thing where you're like, this is lightning in a bottle. This is me. This is my job. And so they, my agents freaked out. And then I got on for the first session with ABC. And the producer who came over from Oxygen five years before has been trying to get a female voice on the network for so long. Mm-hmm. She's like, I don't think you understand. This is such a big deal. And all these people audition and blah, blah, blah. And it was funny because in my heart, I was like, oh, but this is my job. And mm-hmm. that doesn't, I, I got to say, that was like a once in a. Mm-hmm. So I there you have it, folks. There are many times she's like, why am I doing this? I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> and then here was that moment. Yeah. Right. So those moments don't happen every day, but it, they did happen. They have happened. I know, you know what it is? I think I like to focus on struggle when I do these kinds of interviews because I feel like people don't focus enough on struggle and you just feel like, oh, they just hit the ground running. They were like, nobody in, you know, Nebraska. Now they're Matt Damon. And you're like, mm-hmm. well, I'm not, I, I ugh, how do I get, I, I always feel like things are missing. So I always feel like if I share the struggle, I can help somebody else realize that what they're going through, you're going to be okay. Just keep, just push through. <laughs> Or not, or take a break. It'll it'll be there. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, and I think of like your house, right? The house in, that you bought in 2006 and then you lost 60%, but then the money was there when you sold it. And, and so often, like what I would tell my younger self is, Corinne, you don't have to, you don't have to know the whole plan. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be logical, right? Like just keep moving forward make the turns that you need to do. Not everything has to be about money. Right. And, and trust that you can make the living that you desire over time. What would you say to your younger self from 2006? <laughs> Buckle up, sister. <laughs> You're in for a wild ride. 
I, w- I don't know. I don't think I would want to tell myself anything. Maybe, maybe I'd want to calm the anxiety. I just feel like you're, especially 2006, I would have been 33. You're a lot of anxiety in your 30s. Or at least in my 30s. Do you have less anxiety now? Yeah. Hmm. I'm more aware of it happening now and can manage it better. You're going to have to come back. We're going to have to talk about that. Yeah. We're going to have to talk about that. Like I had the anxiety where you got up every night from 3 to 5 a.m. Now I sleep through the night. (laughs) For the most part. (laughs) Okay, Anna, before we go, we need to talk about where we are now in 2021. Where are they now? (laughs) We talked about where we were. How she does it edition. We talked about, you know, the the cookbook and the trust building. We talked about you selling and you you buying a house and selling a house. Right. But where are we now, 2021? 15 years later. 15 years later. Yeah. You know what? It's so funny. Cause you you don't even you don't know where things are gonna wind up. And 15 years, let's say 15 years later, I am now. I'm pretty much living in my dream house that I got to remodel, especially my dream kitchen. That meant a lot to me. I didn't know that that was something 15 years ago that I would even be close to realizing. And a year ago, we sold our LA house. We moved in this dream house full time. And for now, we're here, two hours north of LA in the beautiful wine country, the San Inez Valley. We're loving it. And day to day is do voiceover write some recipes, take some photos, do some interviews with fun people like you, shoot some video, some stupid Instagram lives. With lemons. <laughs> having a lemon face. It was awesome, by the way. Thank you. I mean, the only, the, the only reason that's changed is because now they have filters that you can make your face look stupid like a lemon. So, you know, of course, I'm going to take advantage of that because that's amazing. But it's my day-to-day is still very – it's very close to the same, except for I, the the human person that I was responsible for raising is now out in the world. So I get to do a little more for me. Mm. What's that like? <laughs> well, at first it was quite devastating. And then I quickly made peace with it because I feel like it's supposed to be devastating if you do it right. It's supposed to hurt you and they're supposed to go out into the world. Mm-hmm. If they're hurting it all, even I one iota, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're supposed to be like, thank you, bye. <laughs> then you did a good job. Yeah. And it's supposed <laughs> to hurt like the Dickens for you. Mm-hmm. Well, so it, we've had this complicated, right? Because of COVID, my 21-year-old lived at home for the past 18 months because she was immune compromised. And then my baby was in college, but in, in town. So she lived away last year, but kind of came home for part of the year with everything going on. And so they both moved out this fall. And I thought, oh, I'm ready. I'm Mm -hmm. ready. I won't have socks on the floor anymore. Counters won't have to get cleaned, right? And when we moved my baby out and I came home that night to that space and I cried, it was sad. It's a lot of crying. And I thought, oh, you're going to come home and have dinner. And she's like, oh no, I'm out. Goodbye. And, And when she's come over, we had a barbecue with her and her friends. And then afterwards, she was like, okay, I'm leaving. I said, but your party's still going. No, I'm done. It's goodbye. Thank you. I have a ride home. <laughs> <laughs> like, Hang on. 
<laughs> you can close up my party for me. So I do feel in that sense, I feel really good that they are out there thriving in their world. Yes. And, yes. you know, I'm about a month into it. So getting more comfortable with the space. But it at first I was like, what do I do? My husband and I chose to write a bunch of jokes about our marriage and some our shitty beginnings and start doing a dual act about marriage and toured the country telling jokes about each other so that hopefully <laughs> other people can feel better about their relationship. <laughs> All based in love, but what it wound up doing, it actually like healed a lot of stuff between us that we never spoke of, you know, that we never wanted to like address. And so uh, that, that helped tremendously too. Of course, our daughter was like, I never want to see you guys do that act. And I was like, you should never see us do that. <laughs> Just keep the sanctity of our holy trinity where it is. So it's not on a YouTube out there that we can watch? There's like a couple short clips, but the, I, I really have kept it. I was like, mm, I don't need my kiddo or her friends to see what we're talking about. <laughs> but we could be coming to a stage near you one day, folks. Once we reopen, we did do a show recently. It was very weird. We did a show actually a couple miles from where our house was and it was an outdoor show and there was traffic and jackhammering. And I was like, I don't think we're, we're ready for comedy shows until we can be indoors again. <laughs> but one day. So that is an interesting switch to empty nesting, to mm -hmm. write comedy and go and perform. Yeah. And to create what I don't want to say heal the marriage but like to talk about some of the stuff that may not have been spoken yeah. about right or talk about some make jokes about some things that were swept under the rug it did it helped yeah I feel like you know as we're going through life like things are moving so fast right you're raising kids doing careers all of that stuff and sometimes you may not notice or I know I didn't notice things until later like until now where there's mm -hmm. all this time and you're like oh I didn't see that it was almost like when you had a kid at home, you had to be real deliberate with your free time because obviously you want to be a good mom. You want to be there for your kids. You're not trying to ignore your kids by also pursuing a career. So you're like, okay, I'm going to segment this time and I have this much amount of time to get it done. And it's that Parkinson's law that the work fills mm -hmm. the time allotted. And then it can all, you know, everything can go haywire. Plus add the pandemic to that. And we're not really going out. You do have to give yourself structure and tricks and things like that. So it's for me been a, a learning experience. And, you know, in this day and age where even though she's in New York, we FaceTime or call almost every day. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly connected. Mm -hmm. So that worries, like when in my day, I just never called my mom because you had to like go to the payphone at the end of the dorm. And it was expensive and you needed lots of change, right? Yeah. yeah lots of change. You had to get a calling card. Yes. Reload the calling card by Back in our day. <laughs> we had so, to dial nine nine hundred number and then to call collect. How is it to go from? I mean, so you lived in LA. I mean, I've been I've been in this house for a really long time since nineteen ninety five, mm -hmm. right? And so we remodeled it in two thousand two thousand one. You remodeled your your LA home. You had a, a new kitchen. So when I saw you doing your kitchen of your current place, I'm like, wait a second. You so many kitchens. <laughs> it's not possible. So how was it to leave and go someplace new? It was funny. We did this thing 
when we moved out because our, our daughter just swept in for a week and I mentioned that earlier and she cleaned her stuff out and then we took care of the rest of it. So she kind of swept in and it was funny because we were kind of considering doing this and I talked to her during her freshman year and we're like, what if daddy and I sell the house and move somewhere else or whatever? She goes, I don't care. <laughs> I was like, oh, the house you grew up in, you don't care? She's like, I, I really don't care. You can do whatever you want. You, I want you guys to be happy. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that's a very mature answer. Mm-hmm. But I was like, okay, great. That's awesome. But we weren't ready. So then when we finally did, as the movers took the last bits out of the house and they have to drive two hours north, so they got a head start on us, we started obsessively, both my husband and I, taking pictures of the empty house. It was creepy. <laughs> We're like, this is crazy. <laughs> like took all these pictures, which is not how you're going to remember it in your head. You're going to remember it in your head with all your stuff in it and the life that happened there. Mm-hmm. And then we both cried. And, you know, I'm married to a man I've seen cry maybe twice in 22 years. Mm-hmm. And so that we're both weeping. And then we got in our separate cars because we had to get both our cars up there. And I called one of my oldest friends and she's like, yeah, I understand. You're going to cry. It's okay. And then the moment I pulled in the driveway here, I was like, ah, okay, good. <laughs> I made the right choice. Like I just knew like, and, and I don't, again, I'm not somebody who knows a lot on an instinctual level all the time. I'm not one of those hell yes people, but in that moment I felt that power of the hell yes. And it was mm-hmm. nice. So you guys are away from the life that you built in LA mm-hmm. and then we have COVID. So mm-hmm. lots of people are like, oh no, I've been with my spouse all the time. How was that for you two? It's fine. I mean, I guess for us, it shows that we actually do get along, but it came in stages, you know, because we, we weren't dating a very long time when I got pregnant and we decided to like get married and make a go of it. And, and the odds are not good mm-hmm. for that sort of a beginning. Before you have kids, if you have time to work out your your conflict styles, your communication styles, your all those things, your your childhood trauma before having a kid, that's difficult. So, but if we had a kid and we were, you know, so a lot of it's happened post facto, post kiddo. And so then we're constantly also telling her, sorry, sorry we messed you up. Do you need to go to therapy? We'll <laughs> <laughs> no matter what, you could do it by the book and there's still going to be, there'll be new things and, For sure. you know, there'll be holes, right? So well, we all that, have the best of intentions obstacles. and we all have those things where we're mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm doing it right now. I'm messing her up right now and I can't reel this thing in with mm-hmm. the best of intentions. You're still going to catch yourself doing that. What are the three things you enjoy about now that 15 years ago you didn't know it's possible for you being a creature of needing simultaneous freedom and security knowing that i can make my bills was probably is probably the number one thing for me because scarcity was a big thing growing up with a single mother who was a minister it's not not a profitable uh occupation. She Mm -hmm. did a really great job, but it was Mm -hmm. hard. Knowing that I can make my bills now feels really nice and still maintain the freedom that I desire. Meaning like I don't have to go to an office and wear pantyhose. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very easy to please, or I can go to the grocery store and buy something yummy. I'm not a big handbag and, and diamond person. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty, 
low maintenance in that sense. But I think that knowing that I love what I do and that I'll continue, that it's the love of what I do that continues. That's the jet propulsion factor that pushes it all forward. I don't always love the results that I get, but I love what I do. But expectations are a killer, right? You can't like do it because you want a certain expectation or result. So that's why I th- I say I wouldn't tell myself that much 15 years ago to change it because what it, then you have expectations. That's one, two that's more. That's one? Yes, that I was one. Two. Okay. Wait, what's the question again? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think, did you give me two? What three things do you enjoy now that your 2006-year-old self would not have known possible for you. Yeah, but it's making the bills. I guess more freedom. And then I guess less less anxiety, which I know we're going to talk about in a future mm-hmm. episode. So tell me more about more freedom. What does that look like? I have more of a knowing of myself that if I needed to start all over from scratch, I could do that. That feels like freedom to me. My husband and I have always joked over the years because we both worked in entertainment for so long that you could shut this whole thing down in like two well-placed phone calls. It's all so tenuous and, and working as an artist, it feels so scary, especially if you're an artist who craves security, but you're also need to be free. Like I was mentioning earlier, like it's like, it's these two diametrically opposed forces with that exist within you and you want to have both. Mm-hmm. And then I guess you realize that the freedom is a little bit of an illusion as long as this, and the security is a little bit of an illusion as well. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're defining it. And so redefining freedom to mean like, I have the confidence that if I had to start all over again, I can start all over again and I'd be okay. That feels like freedom. And also ironically security. They're almost the same thing at that point. I'm just got really heady. I'm so no, with you guys. I, I- I'm thinking because we did, I'm sure we did a podcast about money and I'm like, and it was so long ago. I'm like, what did we talk about? But I know we talked about money, but. I love talking about money. Oh, I love love talking about money. Okay. You're on. Oh, great. Oh yeah. No, it's great. So I had so many money hangups. I still discover them and I love it. I'm like, oh, there's one. Pluck, pluck, pluck. Well, so like you, you know, and I can't remember if it was the ragu or the other one, but earlier you were talking about being limited on what kind of tomato sauce your mom could buy, right? Single parent. And I grew up poor and I craved security. And I remember when I was 11, I thought my parents were arguing about money one night. I was in bed and I was in tears and not feeling safe. And just, you know, just safe that would we be okay? And thinking one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a lawyer because that was going to be that, that represents money, security, wealth, power, right. power, all the things if you're a lawyer. And pantyhose. <laughs> Any, it's not a pantyhose-free work environment. I'm gonna. I hate to break it to you. Although maybe now, maybe now the young lady lawyers don't have to. <laughs> so then, what do I do? I go off to be a swim coach, and then I get a college coaching job, and then it's it's a tenured. So I'm teaching and I'm coaching. Right. And that safety, like I so craved it, I so wanted it. Right. Like how you had written down to be the voice of a network. I wanted to be a head coach. I wanted to work in a college. I didn't have to work with parents. I wanted to have safety and security. So I get one of the few, you know, jobs in California that actually has that. I knew how much money I would make if I stayed for 40 years, right? I have a lifetime pension. Mm -hmm. And then I leave to go and do this thing, a podcast and (laughs) which didn't make any sense to me. And then eventually I built a business around it with my life coaching and leadership coaching. 
Right. What I can tell you today, and I could tell myself in 2006, is I feel more secure now without any guarantees right. than I did in 2006 when I had a paycheck that came in and I had a pension. And that's the thing that always has been mind blowing to me because one is I think it's that own, my own agency, right? I know what I can do and I know that, you know, what do I know about myself no matter what is that I'm resourceful. I can figure things out, right? I know how to make money, which is a great skill set. You know, I know how to help people. And so I can figure that part out versus needing the, well, for me, it wasn't a company, but the school to be able to pay me, right? And waiting for them. So I feel, I feel, I understand when you talk about freedom, what that feels like, because it is so empowering when there's risk to it, right? As being an entrepreneur, because it could all change, right? You just said it much better than I did, but yes, I concur <laughs> and I agree. Well, we're not in a competition. But you said it great. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So the fact that you can make money, you have mm -hmm. built several businesses that are successful financially, mm -hmm. right? And, and so have I. We have freedom. You have less anxiety. I, I may actually have more anxiety, so we're going to need to talk about that. Yeah. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. <laughs> the anxiety diaries. But the other side of that is I, I think what I, maybe my having more anxiety is that me, I'm able to feel it, right? Where I spent mm. a lifetime of pushing it down, numbing it, yeah. running away from it. So now mm -hmm. I feel it and I just, I understand it. Interesting. All right, my dear. Well, I guess we're going to be talking about money and anxiety. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> 15 years. I love it. 15, 15 years. years. Congratulations. Yep. And you, don't, you just don't know where you'll be in 15 years. Can I do the 30-year anniversary show? Absolutely. I'm, I'm staking the flag. I'm Neil Armstronging <laughs> that shit right now. I just made years. Neil Armstrong into a verb. Okay. <laughs> That's a ringing endorsement. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for letting me talk about myself on your anniversary show for almost an hour straight. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. And we'll have you back. Great. All right. So... One of the things I hope you have as a takeaway from this, like when we think about when we discussed where we were in 2006, one, our kids were really little. Two, she had just bought a home. Right now she has this new beautiful home and she was able to recoup her money from the loss. And so often when we go through hard times, sometimes we think this is the end of our story. This is all that's possible. And instead of when we can realize like, okay, what do I need to do? What's the next step? And really trust in yourself, really have belief in yourself. And she said something that I really want to circle back to. She thought with that pilot and with that show for a couple of years, that that would then give her momentum. So there would be career action without having to believe in herself. And then notice when she later talked about getting the voiceover gig and she's like, it was like lightning in a bottle. This is me, right? Not every moment's going to be like that. You're going to have moments like when she was depressed and she said yes to Vinny to be on his podcast. We're going to have all these different mixtures, but 
One is know your why. She also had boundaries with Vinny where he had to come to her studio at her house to do this and what she was willing to do and not do. And it also, like we've talked about this before in previous podcasts, it allowed her to fill some time, right? She didn't know, she didn't have this like aspirations that, oh, this is going to be the next huge moneymaker thing for me. She didn't know that that was what's going to happen for her, right? But she said, yes, when I first started my show here 15 years ago, I didn't know that I was going to turn it into a business. I just knew that there was something inside of me I was trying to learn. And I knew that there were many other people that were struggling like me. And what if we can learn and be able to make changes? And you see like Anna talking about like her sauces, like, oh, like does the world really need another tomato sauce? Well, obviously it does because there are people buying it, right? It may not be well-known or mass produced like ragu, but there are people that need her story, need her products, right? There are people like you who really love and appreciate this podcast. So we all have a story that matters. We all can create things that we want in our lives. And one is my invitation for you is to believe in yourself. Know that there's going to be a lot of disappointments and a lot of struggles. And, you know, Anna really wanted to emphasize that because on the outside, it could look like, oh, wow, she just did this and it happened, right? We're talking about 15 years, right? We started in 2006 and she actually backed it up to 2004, right? And there were things that I was doing before I started the podcast in 2006. But so 15 years, who you can become in that process, what you can have. So often we overestimate, there's that quote, I think it's by Tony Robbins, we overestimate what we can get done in a day or a week and we underestimate what we can get done in 10 years. What we did is we talked about what we do now, 15 years later, you know, I had this vision of, I've always loved helping people. I mean, my favorite thing when I was a college coach was when my athletes were going in struggles and they come into my office and we would unpack it and work through it, getting them to believe in themselves, right? Having confidence, going after what they wanted, getting out of comparing and despairing. It's what I do every day now and I get paid for it, right? I get paid for specifically that and I get to be on people's support teams, and I didn't think it was possible. And I, I wanted to have a life where I didn't have a commute, right? Where I could walk down the hall and go into my office. I love that part of my life, right? I remember thinking that, you know, I didn't know that I would still be doing the show 15 years later. And I, I thank you guys so much for leaving reviews, for sharing the show with your friends, for talking about it, for taking a break from it and then coming back to it, right? And for choosing to be here, to sit, for sending your emails, you know, for those of you who sign up and choose to do work together, whether it's on my groups or, you know, as a private client, this has been a beautiful 15 years and it's been hard, right? It's been absolutely hard. And there are days that I question, do I want to keep doing this? And then I keep going. So I thank you so much. And I'm smiling big for all of us today. Hey, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, you'll love my weekly emails. I know you're thinking, Corinne, really? Do I want another email in my overflowing inbox? Yes, you do. Yippee, skippy, you do. These are short. They're sweet. On Fridays, I send out the Friday podcast. It's a great reminder that there's a new show and it comes straight into your inbox of the latest episode. Awesome. You click on it, you go straight because we all need reminders. We have busy full lives. And then on Sundays, I have my Sunday love column. And these are emails I write from the heart. They're filled with love. We need more love. We all do, myself included. These are short emails 
where you get a quick takeaway so you can incorporate this into your life. Because people often want to know what to do and how to do it. And maybe sometimes it's a story that you get, or there's like one time I wrote about the 10 ways to practice gratitude. And that became such a great tool when one of the readers was struggling in the middle of the night, because it can be a scary place in our brains in the middle of the night. And she remembered the email that I sent about 10 ways to practice gratitude. And she was able to practice gratitude and fall back asleep. And that was an awesome lesson for her to incorporate into her life. Go to the show notes and there's a link in the show notes where you can sign up and get these emails in your box. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.